Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. We wanted to take a moment to thank you for your continued support over the years. It's hard to believe that we've been having weekly in-depth discussions about movies since 2011. That's right, 12 years and counting. Producing this show is a labor of love for us, but it does require a lot of time and effort each week. If you enjoy our podcast and would love to help keep it going, there are some easy ways you can show your support. One is by using our Originals page to shop for the original source material that movies we've discussed were based on. That's right. In season one alone, we covered 13 films adapted from books or plays, from Charlie Kaufman's adaptation to David Fincher adaptations like Fight Club. In season two, we covered even more, like Powell and Pressburger's The Red Shoes and The African Queen from our series about legendary cinematographer Jack Cardiff. We can't forget about the four Jason Bourne movies we talked about. Love those movies. Well, the original trilogy, at least. <laughs> for our Richard D. Zanuck series, we did Jaws, Rush, Big Fish, and more. And for our horror series, we talked about John Carpenter's The Thing, which was adapted from Who Goes There? We did our first great car chase series with movies like Bullet, The French Connection, and Drive. And for the holidays, we did Preston Sturgis's Christmas in July. We had a great John Huston series with adaptations like The Maltese Falcon and The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. And for our baseball series, Moneyball with Brad Pitt. Have I told you lately how much I love that movie? Uh, yeah, I think you have. Plus, our Magician series and Heist film series had adaptations as well. Tons of page-to-screen gems. Listeners can find the details and links to the original material at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every book, play, or movie you buy through our links helps support the show, and it's no extra cost to you. So dive in and get your next read today. Thenextreel.com slash originals has all the films adapted from other sources that not only we have covered, but all of the shows on the Next Real family of podcasts. Check it out and get reading. Support the show and build your reading list. It's a win-win. Head to thenextreel.com slash originals. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. In just a matter of seconds, you're going to hear a classic episode of this show from back in the day when we called ourselves Movies We Like. It took us a while to settle into the show's format, so you'll notice some differences as you listen to these episodes. For instance, it takes us a bit of time to actually get into the conversation about the movie. Things like that. But we're still proud of the conversations about the movies themselves, and we think they're worth keeping in the library. So enjoy these episodes from our back catalog. And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com. So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. And scene. Wait, you don't say that at the, you say that at the end. What do you say at the beginning? Action. Action. Yeah. I don't, is there another thing? I think it's just, yeah. And you say action to start and then cut, usually right to end.
Yeah. So and, when do you say and seen? Seen. I I think that's a uh, that's what a uh, an, an, is that the thing you say as an actor in rehearsal when you're when you're doing a doing a, a monologue when you're monologuing. But only when you call yourself an actor. Yeah, that's an actor. Like an actor doesn't say stupid stuff like that. No, they're uh, they're beyond that. They're above it. Beyond below it. They're below it. <laughs> beyond, above, and below. <laughs> and around <laughs> and through. Hi, Andrew. How are you? Welcome to the show. Bienvenidos. I'm so glad you could make it. It's The Next Reel, starring Andy Nelson as Andy. Aha! <laughs> uh-huh. uh, and I'm Pete Wright. And we're going to talk tonight, we're going to wrap up our heist series uh, with the 1956 film The Killing. This is Kubrick, Stanley Kubrick. It's a bit of a fun series. You know, heist films, there are so many good heist films. And, uh, you know, I think, you know, we had a good selection this run. But I think, if anything, this series and, like, comments from people on Facebook, it's become obvious, if it wasn't already, that there are just so many great heist films to choose from. And it's definitely a series that we should revisit. Yeah, I think so. I, I It's a funny thing that has happened here. Uh, with these heist films, and you tell me, tell me what you think. I mean, I I feel like, um, you know, so we did uh, the bank job, uh, the town, Inside Man, and, and the killing. Mm-hmm. So we, those are our four heist films, and we did obviously we did Now You See Me as our crossover sort of heist film. Right. That was that was terrible. That was not a good entry into this series, but N- not know. good, not good. Uh, the bank job. I think is better than I remember it. The town is as good as I remember it. Inside Man, not as good as I remember it. I yeah, I completely agree. Yeah, yeah. So that was a tough one. And the killing is interestingly. Um, well, I can, I'm excited to talk about this one because it's uh, yeah, the verdict is out on that on this one a little bit. But I'm very excited to talk about it. I'm excited to go back into uh, into this. Uh, uh, genre of film uh, in particular i miss talking about these these uh, old black and white flicks they're always our, fun to, yeah, yeah i mean our john houston series was was uh, i have fond memories so many years ago so many of our john houston series and this uh kind of rings true to that uh, but in the meantime we've got some trailers to talk about yes we don't have any old business Do we have old business I don't think so. I think we're just jumping right in. Let's just jump right in. So we're yeah. going to jump in. You're going to go to thenextreel.com, and you're going to subscribe to the show if you don't already. Uh, if you're listening to this on Facebook, head over to thenextreel.com. Go ahead. Take the time. Make the clicks. Subscribe to it in iTunes uh, or in your podcatcher of choice so that you don't miss a show. Uh, we, we come to you each and every week, uh, and uh, we do this thing. So we would love you to join us each and every week. Uh, in the meantime... Your trailer, sir. You know, it's uh, my trailer is a film that is coming out next week, actually. I'm guessing it's going to be a fairly limited indie sort of release. It is called Crystal Fairy and the Magical Cactus. It is a big uh, Sundance hit this past year, Best Director Award, World Cinema. Uh, looks like uh, Sebastian Silva made it. He is a Chilean director, and the film stars Michael Sarah and Gabby Hoffman. And I can only say, I guess, that this is Michael Sarah's. Uh, I, I guess I could call it his Chilean years, because not only is he doing Crystal Fairy and the Magical Cactus with Sebastian Silva down in Chile this year, but also the film Magic Magic, which it's just strange. I, I, he must have just hit it off with this director, and uh, he's got these two films coming out this year. I actually, I think uh, Magic Magic may be available already but uh uh yeah this film crystal fairy and the magical cactus looks like a just a crazy time it's just a crazy film uh, michael sarah is an american expat living down in chile he's got some buddies down there and they are in search of this i i don't know if it's a real cactus but it's called the san pedro cactus and they're going to, you know, steep it and make some brine out of it that I guess gives you crazy hallucinations. In the uh, in this journey, they run into this other crazy American, Gabby Hoffman, who she just looks uh, frightening 
And uh, her character is just like one of those characters that kind of draws you in because of the craziness. I, I don't know. It's it's a looks like a wild uh, character to be playing. She's gotten quite a bit of uh, a notice in the uh, film festival circuits. And it looks like a really fun, crazy film. I think it will be a lot of fun to see. I think so, too. I like I like the trailer. I am a I'm a big fan of Michael Sarah. So um, absolutely, I, you know, I just think that 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 kid's got something going on. Uh, so I'll pretty much see whatever he's whatever he's doing. And I'm so enamored with uh, his uh, work in Arrested Development right now. As you know, we've got oh yeah, uh, quite a big fan of the show, really big show. So I'm I'm looking forward to it. Looks goofy. Looks awesome. I'm in and a little crazy. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah, a little bit crazy. It does look interesting, and it's it's completely going the other direction from the other Chilean film that he's doing with Sebastian Silva this year, Magic Magic, which is like a psychological horror film. It's like a totally different direction. So very interesting, uh, you know, I guess, pair of films that this uh, pairing of Michael Cera and Sebastian Silva is making this year. So awesome. anyway, that's the trailer. All right. Check that one out. I am doing, uh, wow. In a world where it feels like Ethan Hawke is in every movie ever. <laughs> it's fast proven that he is. Comes Getaway. <laughs> uh, Getaway is uh, his new movie comes out, I think, what did we say? August 30th, something like yeah. that. It's the end of yep. August. Um, and it is, uh, you know what? I, I am a sucker for driving movies, I guess. Uh, so Ethan Hawke, it's, a, it's another one of those. What was the Liam Neeson thing that... Uh, um, you know, his daughter was kidnapped. Taken, 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 and Where his taken daughter too. was taken. His daughter was taken. <laughs> what was that? I'm one like, called? <laughs> you know, walked away with, or made off with, or what is that movie? Absconded. Absconded with Liam Neeson. Uh, comes Getaway. Uh, Courtney Solomon directs this film, written by Sean Finnegan and Greg Maxwell Parker. Stars Ethan Hawke, Selena Gomez, and the multi-accented John Voight. Uh, playing a sinister uh, man on a microphone. And uh, but he was an easy guy to pin from the trailer. It's like I could see the lips, I could hear the voice. I'm like, oh, that's John Voight. Look, John Voight, yeah, crazy accent. I uh, so it's it's uh, pretty much um, uh, Ethan Hawke is his wife is kidnapped apparently for some reason, and he is uh, fairly adept uh, behind the wheel. In fact, it looks. Like he spends at least almost the entire trailer behind the wheel. Yeah. I think there's only a few shots where he's not. <laughs> yeah. And when he's not, he's like standing next to the car. Or <laughs> right. like he's always touching a car. Maybe that was one of the uh, the secret rules of the shoot. Um, I think it's I, part of the reason I'm interested in this is, uh, you know, you look at the young uh, Selena Gomez. Does it not seem like she's trying to dirty up her career a little bit? It does seem that way. A little bit. Like she does the Disney stuff and now she's all full on spring breakers and getaway. And I think she's trying to build a little reputation. Doing something she is. She's doing something. I'm not sure it's uh, good, but she's doing something. Uh, So anyway, it looks like I'm just like I said, I'm a sucker for driving movies. And uh, I I, I like these. I, I liked you know, I like the the I said the BMW films with the Clive Owen. I like the transporter movies, all of them, even the stupid one with the crane. Uh, I I like them. I like any the crane. Yeah, it was the I think it was Transporter Three or something. Oh, I, I uh, like I like all these movies. There's a guy in a car. I like all of those movies. Yeah, I'm pretty excited about this one. I you know, so I'll see it. I know they're at, you know Ethan Hawke, whatever mixed mixed feelings, but I uh, I I do find I kind of like that guy. You know. He's one of those guys that I grew up with because yeah. I was watching Explorers and all those sorts of films. So I always have kind of that affinity for him just because of he, that that connection from my youth. So well, it's, sure. it's one of those I still want to see. I do. And, you know, so, I you know, I look at it and I, I see him. And, it, you know, we make sort of fun that it seems like he's in everything right now. And, and maybe it's just the sort of confluence of, of media events that we see him in getaway trailer after just finishing The Purge and the uh, uh, Before Midnight, the... Mm-hmm. Which is, is has gotten some nice critical acclaim. Uh, the wrapping up the trilogy of the before movies, uh, before sunrise, before sunset, and now before midnight. Um, but it turns out he has. It's not like he just disappeared. I'm like looking at his movies, and he's got a, a, you know, there's a series of films every every year, every other year. He's he's working quite steadily. 
Um, and I, I just, I, I don't know why they come out and they're just sort of forgettable. You know, I mean, he's he's done some good stuff. I, I love Before the Devil Knows You're Dead. Um, but Daybreakers, I thought, was great. It was an interesting take on vampirism. Yeah, it was. Um, it was. You know, I, he's just got, he's, he's had a pretty, uh, just right now, it feels like Ethan Hawke is everywhere. Well done, yeah, Ethan Hawke's promoter. He really has kind of uh, popped, at least. It, yeah. Yeah. It, maybe it's just because it's been like every other trailer seems like it, it is an Ethan Hawke like one. Yeah. Uh, so, anyhow, um, the thing I'm, that I'm makes raising me... a glass to reality bites right now, let's just say. <laughs> there you go. The thing that makes me a little skeptical about it is Courtney Solomon is directing it. He mostly is a producer, he's produced a lot of, of films. Yeah. Um, most of which are films I'm not that interested in watching. Um, and that this is only his third directorial effort. The other two being Dungeons and Dragons, the abysmal film from 2000 that uh, you know, it was just shut a, a, your a, mouth, a, shut it, shut an your embarrassment mouth. for anyone who enjoyed the game <laughs> when they were young. <laughs> and and then an American Haunting, which you know it's it's a fun little horror film, but uh, you know it wasn't uh, anything to write home about. So uh, you know. I don't know. This film looks like it is definitely high octane, if if nothing else. So for that, I'll say okay, I'll give it a chance. Yeah, you know that. Yeah, no Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> Jeremy Irons, what are you doing there? <laughs> <laughs> Who did you lose right. a bet to? Yeah, seriously, <laughs> this is definitely a film on a dare. Yes. Uh, all right. I that's what I've got for trailers. Uh, and I think that does it for old business. Let's talk. Yeah. Let's talk heists. Let's. The Killing, 1956. Sterling Hayden, which uh, we know we know Sterling Hayden from um, Asphalt Jungle. Asphalt Jungle, which was uh, one of our one of our favorites. The always handsome, debonair Johnny Clay. Uh, very rugged, very rugged guy. Rugged guy. So what's the story with this uh, with this film? Why why do you love this film? Well, aside from it being a Kubrick film, I think I would love this film even if it wasn't a Kubrick film. I, this was a I think I'm trying to remember if I actually saw this before or after I saw Pulp Fiction. But uh it's it was one of those films that I watched that put it into my head that, you know, a film doesn't really need to be told chronologically in order to be successful. And I, I really enjoy the way that this story jumps back and forth with all these different characters. And I, I, if anything is dated about this film, it is the sense of the narrator trying to define that for you so that you can really pay attention to, but at three 30 that afternoon, like right. and then at 6 PM that evening, and then he's really jumping around in time that really, uh, if anything feels more dated with this film, but I find the story so interesting. I, I find these criminals, uh, just enjoyable to watch their crime itself. I really get into as it's happening. It's, it all feels very taut and, and well put together. And it's it's tragic. I mean, it, it really fits into the film noir uh, genre that we've talked about a number of times. It has that kind of tragic quality. It has, you could almost say, this femme fatale in the film and this your protagonist is just kind of nothing works out for him. I I just enjoy watching it. I enjoy the story. I enjoy the uh, the heist itself. I, I have a lot of fun with this film. I I agree with you. And, I you know, I want to, Talk more about that point of of uh, linear storytelling in these in the, in modern motion pictures because I you know this is an area of of um, sort of history that I am not uh, well versed. But to your point, this is the film that I feel introduced me to that uh, to the idea, uh, as you said, of of um, telling stories uh, non linearly. Right? Sure. Um, I it feels enormously innovative in its own right. And I, I think that narrator holds, uh, is, is sort of hanging a candle on that, right? Because it, that narrator exists to uh, fill a hole of trust that you sort of feel like somebody in the production didn't quite feel like they were going to be able to to get it across. Like we weren't ready to, 
understand this movie told in in, in uh, you know out of order and, and from different perspectives and told again from different perspectives um you know each major sequence around each major character and so this narrator comes into play to just uh, to give you sort of a lifeline i don't think they need it and i think if you were to remake this movie even uh, you know a shot for shot remake you could get away with not including any narrator at all i think you're right that's what feels dated i think we've we've sort of given that up um, but, uh, you know, the way the film is architected is really quite brilliant, um, for the, for the period. You know, it's, it's really interesting. It, this does feel like it was probably one of the first, if not the first film that jumped around chronologically like this, listening to the producer, James B. Harris, talk about this film. He said they cut this film together. He and Stanley really enjoyed the novel that it's based off of by Lionel White called Clean Break that had that kind of chronological mishmash of how the story was told. It would kind of follow one character and then it would jump back in time and it would follow another character. And it kind of did that through the novel. They made the film, and that's what really excited them about the novel. And they wrote it that way. And uh, Stanley Kubrick, along with um, Jim Thompson, that he uh, uh, he wrote it with. And when they screened it for the first time, just everybody hated it. One of the uh, the heads of, I believe it was um, United Artists, came up to them after the word and said. I'm just I can't believe that you guys wasted our money like this. They were just so disappointed by how the film was structured. They thought it was a complete mess. And this it was like a preview screening and so Harrison Kubrick went back and they actually started re-editing the whole film chronologically because they were just, you know, they couldn't believe that it gotten such a bad reaction. They started cutting it uh chronologically and they were about halfway through or getting close to getting close to finishing when they realized they, they looked at each other and like, you know, what drew us to this book was this amazing structure that it had. And they had the realization that if the film wasn't doing that, then it wasn't the film that they set out to make. And they cut it back the way that it originally was, which is how we see it now. And they it just kind of with, a you know, United Artists Be Damned, this is the film that we set out to make. And they they made it. And then United Artists kind of sat on it a little bit. They didn't give it a real release date. They had to plug it in at uh, some other film that wasn't doing well. They pulled it off uh, um, this other bad film. They pulled that off and they stuck the killing in without really giving it any advertising or anything. And it really was kind of a big box office failure, even though it got critical praise. It wasn't until later that people really found it and it became something that stood up and managed to stand the test of time. Well, and this is, I, I think, to that point, this is a movie that was that came, uh, you know, before its time, and it, it needed to. The audience needed to sort of mature around it, and I think that can be said for a lot of Kubrick's films. <laughs> yeah, yeah, probably true. <laughs> we weren't quite ready for it. I love this. Uh, I, I love this quote um, from Eddie Muller uh, in his uh, book *Dark City: The Lost World of Film Noir*. With the killing, Stanley Kubrick offers a, a monument to the classic caper film and a fresh gust of filmmaking in one package. Who knew when he wrapped it? that it would be the last amusing movie he'd ever make. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I don't know if I'd agree with that. <laughs> but it's a great quote. It is, it is a great come quote. Come on. But I would say, come on, look at Dr. Strangelove. I know, it's I know. Great. but And so who knew that would be his last amusing movie? <laughs> That's where I put the stick in the ground. That, that is true. Um, that is <laughs> it is... Uh, so... Let's talk a little bit more about the architecture then but as we walk through a little bit of the story. I think the story is interesting, and in, unless you know the story, the uh, uh, you know the payoff at the end on the tarmac is it doesn't doesn't mean as much. Yeah. Uh, uh, basically, it's a it's a, a track, a racetrack heist, and and uh, Sterling Hayden is going about his business of building his crew. Uh, through the the first and second act of the movie, and then executing the heist, but it is told in such a way where we see different segments of the heist itself intercut with each character's kind of backstory. Is that fair? Yeah, that's. I think that's pretty fair. It comes in and out, and as it builds, right? Yeah, it comes in and out, and so you know we see you know as the heist is, is sort of unfolds, we then go back and see the you know the sniper as he's getting his his you know weapons in order, and we see the. Um, you know, we see the boxer as he's being approached to come and, and, uh, the boxer chess player, uh, yeah. <laughs> one of my pugilist, favorites. 
pugilist uh, is, uh, to get his uh, his hand out. It, it is that that sequence in particular. Um, it, I, uh, the actor's name. Uh, what is the actor's name? Is that um, the uh, it's Maurice Maurice yeah Obukov Obukov yeah so that's his character's name so Cola yeah, Quariani uh, is is one of my favorite. Uh, sequences because it this is um, it, it's one of those that illustrates the honor among thieves thing you know it's a negotiation about uh, you know joining this this crew for a bit part uh, I'm going to pay you twenty five hundred dollars to come make a scene and occupy a whole lot of police uh, and yes you're going to go to jail but you're going to have enough money it won't be a big deal you're not going to hurt anybody um, it'll just be a disturbance of the peace and this guy is negotiating well maybe maybe you should just cut me in or maybe you should. but the whole sequence is so polite yeah uh that that these two gentlemen it's just it's like an art form watching these two really i mean it is a gentleman's game these these gentlemen are having a conversation like gentlemen about uh something that is otherwise pretty dark uh and i i find that so subversive it's uh, a fascinating well not only that but to have it in yeah. this chess house in chess a, exactly playing house which I guess is a real place where they filmed it called the Flea House, which is in New York City. They filmed the scene there, and Cola Coriani is actually a chess player, and he actually would frequent the Flea House in New York playing chess. So very much holding true to his character, and Stanley Kubrick being a big chess player himself, I'm not sure if that informed the writing of that scene, but just the fact that we have these two criminals discussing you know, kind of negotiating their the plans for you know his participation in this in this heist was a fascinating scene to have while they're sitting at it in this room where everyone is playing chess and playing these mental this mental game with each other. It is wonderful. It is wonderful and ironic. Uh, so they, we go through this sequence. We meet the crew. We meet the sharpshooter. We meet the pugilist. We meet the. Uh, uh, we have already met uh, Johnny Clay. We know he's executing the. He, he plays sort of the principal role in in executing the crime. We meet the dirty cop who is uh, mm -hmm. who plays a role of of you know getting the money out of the. Uh, off the property, right? Ted DeCorsia uh, playing right. the the corrupt cop. Yeah, we meet the um, oh gosh, we meet George played by Alicia Cook Jr. Yeah, the the window teller who window helps teller. him get in, right? Right, yeah. who helps him get into the back side of the house. We meet all of these guys, and then we see the heist itself, and then and and things uh, as predicted don't go well. Yeah. They go well initially. Uh, they get the money. They get out of the. Uh, uh, they get out of the track. Um, uh, and now they have to go uh, meet up. It starts to go south when our uh, our friend, the sharpshooter, uh, is well. You know, he has a a, a, a meeting in the parking lot, and uh, <laughs> I, I think this is a beautiful sequence. It's 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 a great. I just I love that whole sequence. I love that bit of the film because. This character, it's it. He's created accidentally this interesting bond with the parking attendant, yes. and uh, because you know, pretending that he is he is a paraplegic and can't walk, the t the parking attendant has kind of a gammy leg, and they kind of you know, in a weird way, bond. And the way that he talks to the guy, even though it's so he is so friendly and everything, it just he's always biting his teeth, and he's it's, hard to watch. Yeah, it's it's a fascinating conversation, and this parking attendant's kind of connected to him and keeps coming back to chat with him more and more, even as he's trying to get his gun out and trying to you know do his part of this whole heist. And it's uh, it it comes across brilliantly, and I think the payoff of it's it just really it it hits really well. Everything from the the horseshoe to the shootout in the parking lot, and everything. The uh, and that that I think is the important note. The, the uh, you know the parking lot attendant brings him uh, a good luck horseshoe because he's you know he thinks that you know the guy sitting in his car to because he can't you know he can't get in to watch but he's got his binoculars. He's actually there to assassinate a horse. Yeah. Uh, but he you know so the the attendant comes and brings him a horseshoe. In order to get the attendant to go away, he in, insults the attendant. And the attendant goes away and throws the horseshoe on the ground. Yeah. So he assassinates the horse, throws his car into reverse, backs up over the horseshoe, a uh, flat tire ensues, and he is shot by lot police. And yeah. and it is a very fast uh, turn 
that causes the first of our eight body count in this film. Yeah, and one, if if that was the only one, I mean, they could have gotten away with everything yeah. else if, yep. if this was the only incident that had happened. But unfortunately, this is noir, <laughs> and we do have our femme fatale in the form of Marie Windsor uh, playing Elisha Koch Jr.'s uh, horrible wife and doing such a great job she's at it. She's so good. Uh, uh. She is just born to be in noir films. I mean, she just does she, the part so well. Like she was painted into this movie. Yeah. Um, and and that, that relationship starts very early. It's one of the earlier sequences as we see uh, George go home and and uh, he is uh, uh, a cuckold. I mean, he's he is she's she's having an affair on him and uh, he thinks he can win her back uh, as he or maybe not even intentionally thinks he can, you know, sort of tell her what he's involved in to win her back. But you can tell he, the the information about the the scam starts to just sort of ooze out of him. Yeah. The the meaner she is, the more hateful she is, the more he tells. Uh and and it's like he can't even he can't help himself. It's beautiful. Yeah, it's a fascinating painful relationship to watch because he clearly uh, obviously, they got married. There was obviously something there, but it's based on so much just hatred now and this just this vitriolic attitude she has toward him. And he he kind of bites into it and gets angry at her. And then he tries to fix things. And it's just and the way that he ends up kind of telling everything to her. You know, it's just uh, you can tell because she just the way that she plays him. And it's it's a really interesting manipulative relationship that she has with him it is so she gets all this information out of him and then she turns around and hands it to her boyfriend mm. oh the wonderful ah uh, yes vince edwards as val Kenham. and then that's when we cut we we uh you know that's that's what ties to our our i think the major spilling of blood yeah that would definitely hold true <laughs> much bl- blood is is spilt once uh once he enters the scene and uh although interestingly i had forgotten that uh, george is the one who really uh starts plugging away and really kind of takes his stand right there and yeah. it's, it was nice to see is you kind of don't expect him to uh he seems that meek mild-mannered uh window teller at the tracks he doesn't seem like the sort who actually is going to pull a gun and start plugging away that's right that's right. He really does not, and uh, you know, it's it, it's fine. It, it's nice to see him sort of grow up right in that sequence. Uh, the uh, Val and his goon come into the uh, the meeting place before Johnny Clay has arrived. He's running a little bit behind. Everybody's getting antsy because everything is running to a strict timeline, and yet Johnny is behind with the money. So yeah. all the other guys in the crew are waiting not so patiently. When Val and his goon walk in, and that's when the gun uh, the gunfight ensues. They all die except for George, who returns to his house and shoots his wife mm. in a fantastic death scene. Yeah, it really is. It's a great scene. His death scene more than hers, although I do love hers very much. She she hears the door open and calls out to Val. Which is the ultimate <laughs> insult, you know. He's already bloody, and now she's just salting him uh, handily. He comes in, grabs the bird cage, and shoots her, and falls to the ground, leaving the bird <laughs> trapped, trapped in his poor little cage. It's like, uh, I mean, oh, it actually is a, a very fitting image for the, this noir film. It really works well, you know. Oh, it, this it really this does. bird trapped in the cage. So t- let's uh, talk about the the ending. I think this is one of the best endings uh, uh, that uh, of any of these movies. It's just heart wrenching. Yeah. Well, you know, apparently they had come up with this plan where uh, if if anything had gone south and whoever it was who had the money felt that that there was something wrong, they would just hit. They would like run and they would leave town and eventually connect with everybody at some point it seems like a really kind of sketchy plan but that's apparently the plan they had it's like wow really that's you're just gonna you're allowing for someone to run out on you with all the money it was a simpler time andy (laughs) yes right i'm (laughs) i'm forgetting where i am but so so they um so clay drives up he sees 
George walking out, stumbling, all bloody. He realizes that something's gone awry, and he just hightails it to the airport where he's going to meet his uh, fiance, Colleen Gray, playing Faye, and basically hop on a plane, fly to Boston with all the money that he's got in this in this suitcase. He's you know gone through the whole process of transferring it from this giant duffel bag to the suitcase, so it looks like he's on a trip. And he goes, and of course they won't check, or he, they won't let him bring the bag on because it's too big. They have to check it, and we already know <laughs> it's this horribly crappy suitcase that it comes. That he with bought in a secondhand store. It, it comes with keys that he that don't even fit. It's like, come on, man! At least buy a good suitcase for this. So he, you know, he unwillingly checks the bag, and as, as it's driving across the tarmac on the little uh, the baggage car. This other woman who's waiting for her husband's flight to arrive, who's got this annoying poodle, the dog hops down and, of course, just perfectly timed, runs out into the middle of the tarmac. The baggage car swerves. His suitcase falls off, explodes. All the money goes everywhere. And it's, it's, you know, it's the it's the like the money goes everywhere slowly. Right. I mean, they linger is, on this on that shot for a long time. I actually, every time I see that money disappearing, I I find it the most fascinating and painfully fascinating uh, disappearance of money because it's almost like this, this it's like a glob of money just laying there. Yes. It's almost like an entity. The way that it just sits there on the tarmac and this almost like a just a, like a cucumber shaped blob. Yes, and it's like a wind machine is blowing it, but it's like slowly just stripping the bills off of the outer sides of it until. It does finally disappear. It is it's painful watching this this thing just kind of whittle away to nothingness as it all disappears into the air. And you can just feel from, you know, this is our character, this is our protagonist that we've been with this whole time. You could just feel the pain and the loss and everything is has worked. And he's this far, and just to see this this money pickle on the tarmac <laughs> just slowly strip away to nothingness. It's horribly painful. It's and horribly it's, painful, and it's such a signature of Kubrick's patience, right? I mean, even yeah. as early as this was in his career, I mean, you can already see just lingering, and not even a slow zoom, not even—I mean, no, there is no movement no. besides the pain of the money blowing up into the air and blowing high up into the air. This isn't a close-up shot. I mean, it's a very wide shot of the money filling the the, the frame. It's— it is beautiful and painful. I mean, gut-wrenchingly painful. More than watching all those characters die in that bloodbath in the hotel room is watching all $2 million blow away like this. It's epic. And then, and then to see him leave and just be so resigned at that point. You know, they're, they're trying to get a cab. No cabs are stopping. The detectives are behind him. His fiance is just like, you know, run, run. And he's just like, oh, what's the point? And What's just that point? resignation in his face. The resignation just, oh. followed up with that beautiful symmetry. Uh, the the last shot of the film as those two officers come out of the out of the opposite doors and stand on opposite sides of the frame, kind of flanking him, moving towards him so slowly. As you know, his that resignation is just paid off in in prison. Yep. It was. It's. It's great. It's great. Yeah. Classic. It is. It truly is one of those films that, uh, you know, I think every time I watch it, I feel like it gets, I, I enjoy it more and more. Just the the noir tendencies throughout the film, the heist itself, I, I have such a fun time watching. And the characters, it's, I mean, it's just such great faces. All of these people, uh, a lot of them have been in a lot of different noirs. We've talked about Elisha Cook Jr. before in um, Maltese Falcon. Another great noir, mm -hmm. uh, Marie Windsor, like I said, has been in a lot of uh, great noir. Sterling Hayden, of course, and just you know, down the line. I mean, Joe Turkell is in this. Uh, you know, I, I mean, I don't think I even recognized him, but you know, there he is in this, and he was in The Shining, Blade Runner. I mean, he's a guy who's been around forever, and it's so fun to see him. Just so many great faces in this film, great characters. I mean, I think it speaks. It's it it speaks highly of both the novel that drew Kubrick and Harris to it, as well as uh, the screenplay that Kubrick and Jim Thompson wrote uh, together for this film. And interestingly, uh, the way that the credits ended up 
landing in this film is Stanley Kubrick got credit for a screenwriter and Jim Thompson got credit. I think initially it was additional dialogue by Jim Thompson. They've now, I guess, changed it to just dialogue by Jim Thompson. And I guess Jim Thompson, who is a, a, a pretty popular pulp kind of crime novelist of the time, who's worked with Kubrick on a number of projects, he ended up feeling pretty slighted by the credit on this because he and Kubrick had really just done the work on this script together and really spent the time adapting this novel to make it what it was. And I think he really felt slighted that Kubrick ended up getting the screenwriting credit and he only got the initially, like I said, the additional dialogue credit. It's uh, strange that it was credit that way. But the interesting thing is that it didn't stop them from working together. They ended up, he, I believe Thompson came on and helped him with his uh, next several projects. So obviously the relationship wasn't broken over it, but you know, it just speaks to the way that credits get given. Sometimes it's a, uh, it's strange nature of them. That makes less sense to me every time we talk about it. <laughs> it's, it's a wacky, wacky world of, of arbitration. And I don't know if that's what boiled down to this one. I, I have no idea how the WGA was doing it back in the fifties, but it's uh no matter how it, you slice it, it's a crazy, crazy thing. Uh, okay. So in terms of other uh, production uh, elements, uh, we've got Lucien Ballard uh, doing the uh, cinematography on this film. This was, um, it was interesting uh, Lucien was a, a cinematographer who had uh, I, Kubrick had seen stuff that he had done. He'd worked on a number of uh, uh, projects, like I think he'd worked with Hitchcock before, Robert Wise, um, some some pretty big names, and uh, maybe not Hitchcock. I don't think that was Hitchcock, uh, but anyway, he'd worked with um, uh, some big studio projects, and. Kubrick was drawn to him and brought him on, but Lucien and Hitchcock ended up, I mean, <laughs> Lucien and, and Kubrick totally ended up butting heads on this film because Kubrick is such a controlling person about the look of everything in his film. And he was telling Lucien how he wanted the shots to be lit, how he wanted everything to look. And Lucien, in his mind, that was all his job. He would define how everything looked. But Kubrick was so meticulous in planning everything that he was telling Lucien how he wanted everything and it drove Lucian nuts and Lucian refused to even ever go sit in on any of the dailies and watch any of the footage for this film. He was, he was so frustrated at working with Kubrick, which is sad because I think it, I mean, I think it looks great. I think it's a fantastic looking film and it, it really does. And I think this is one of those where it, you can see uh, a real expertise at working with like single source lighting. And I mean, they, they have that, that hard light down to a a, a, a real brilliant uh, art here. I mean, it's just every one of those sequences where you have them walking down a long hallway or through a back alley or making a transition from the, the locker room to the cash room. It's just, uh, you know, it's walking through a different universe. I think it's really beautiful. It truly is. I mean, it's a great looking film. It really fits in. I think it fits in nicely with the noir films. Oh, yeah. yeah. Right at home. Uh, and we've got Gerald Freed. Yeah, he did the music. I think it works uh, really nicely in this film. I don't, I don't think it. Again, you know, interestingly for all these heist films, none of them stand out like, oh, I just want to go sit and listen to those themes all the time. But I think they all are completely um, very serviceable for the films themselves, and I think they all work really well. Gerald Freed actually had known Kubrick since high school and composed music for his first four films. And so he'd been around with him for a little while. And I believe he had also uh, done some uh, work on some of the original Star Trek TV shows. Indeed. Indeed he did. Yeah. He is, uh, uh, you know, really uh, adept television, um, uh, producing music for television. Uh, Star Trek, the man from Uncle Gilgan's Island, yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, he's been doing that for a long, long time. Yeah. Um, strong noir themes. And, you know, we were talking about um, Inside Man and what I so liked about um, the, the music in that was, you know, when it would fall back to those more uh, noirish uh, themes. This is what I wanted out of that music for Inside Man. It, it felt right at home. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Who else? Uh, you know, I, I I think that's 
you know, I think that's most of the crew. I, James B. Harris, the producer, um, he and Kubrick actually had met, I think, a few years before this. And um, Kubrick had just done Killer's Kiss and said, hey, you know, I've got this kind of open door with United Artists. And so he and James Harris, uh, they had kind of connected, come together, and they were looking for projects to do. They're, they're trying to find one. They ended up finding the killing. Um, they thought, or a clean slate, I, not clean slate, um, clean break, sorry. They, they found this book. They wanted to adapt it. They went to Un, um, United Artists, and United Artists said, great, sounds good, um, but we're not going to give you any money for it. Give us a script. And so they were like, oh, fine, we got it. So they ended up having to do all the work. United Artists finally gave them some money to do it. I, I think once they had a script, once they had Sterling Hayden attached, they um, ended up giving them $200,000 to make this film. Um, they, uh, Harris felt like they needed a little more. He, he ended up putting one hundred and twenty or 130000 of his own money toward the project to, to finish the financing that they used in getting this film made. But he, you know, interestingly, he went on, he produced a number of films with Kubrick, I think Paths of Glory and Lolita. And then he talked to Kubrick and said, you know what, I, I love doing this, but I really want to try directing. And, and Kubrick was just like, you know, I love working together. I love our collaboration, but I totally understand the joy of directing when you see the rushes, when you see the work that you've done up on screen, you know, you really feel something there. And I totally understand and I support you. And so Harris went off and started directing his own films. I think he started in 1965 with a Cold War thriller called The Bedford Incident, which I haven't seen, but after watching this, I'm kind of curious too. He did not direct much. No, I think his, his directorial efforts were few. Few and, and rather far between. Uh, looks like his last film was Boiling Point in 1993. Um. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. With, uh, you know, Wesley Snipes. Yeah, there you go. Always bet on black, my friend. <laughs> I don't know if you knew that, but that's an important lesson. Ah, uh, yes. Mm-hmm. What I learned from the Snipes. Movie didn't do well uh, in the box office, I think uh, largely because of what we have already discussed. It was it was new to people. Yeah. This and non-linear approach to... Uh, narrative storytelling harrison kubrick told united artists this is a film that needs a small opening in like a limited run of theaters it needs to have an a, an advertising campaign built up to really help audiences kind of pre- be prepared for what they're going to see and then it can kind of build on word of mouth that's not what united artists gave it like i said they just kind of threw it out into the theaters almost just dumped it there and it really failed even though it got I mean, critically praised, Time Magazine said, you know, this is going to be one of the big films of the year. And uh, um, it just really, from everything that I've read, it performed poorly at the box office. I couldn't find anything as far as figures, except for the fact that they said it recorded a loss of $130,000. So if that says anything, if, you know, if it costs $330,000 to make, that means that it only made $200,000 at the box office. So it definitely didn't do very well. That's a shame. But it's nice to see it. It, it has some staying power and looks like some cult follow. Um, uh, you know, for the, I, I think now that it is, um, you know, that it's cemented as part of the, the noir gestalt, um, it's, it's absolutely worth seeing. Yeah, it's a film that... I never grow tired of. Every time I watch it, I find new things to enjoy, new characters to root for, just just all the little things that Kubrick injects into the film that these characters do. I have so much fun watching this film, and it's I, I can see why this is one of the films that uh, Roger Ebert put in his you know favorite movies list, those like top one hundred lists that he would do. I can see why he would put it there because. It is so well worth it. It is such a fun film to watch and uh, just a fascinating story about these characters and watching their lives and this and their crime fall apart. This is one of those movies where once you see it all the way through, you could watch the last half hour a thousand times and never get sick of it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think that that last half hour is, is some exemplary strong filmmaking. And I, I really, I like you said, I never get tired of it. Um 
you know, we haven't talked about Colleen Gray, have we? Not really. I mean, I mentioned her that, uh, you know, she's kind of his uh, fiance, but other than that, uh, she's, she's in it only for a couple scenes, but it is, it is tragic to see her as we, uh, at the end there. It is very sad. Mm. Man. Colleen Gray. It's always interesting. These, uh, these women connected with these tragic noir characters as they watch their men basically unfold, unfold and their lives ruined. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. The, uh, the, the tragedy of, you know, women who end up with men who are criminals and, you know, may, whether they're struggling to make right or not, especially in the world of noir films, it's always just such a tragedy for the woman who's attached to them. It is. It is, especially at the end because she's, you know, she's she is has gotten the payoff. You believe she has the payoff and then they watch the money disappear. Yeah. And she's alone. Oh, yep. So sad. Um, I I love this film. We should uh, flick chart it. Are you ready? Go for it. Tell no, them. Tell no them where you. to find us. Tell no them where to you. find us. Okay. <laughs> Stop. Uh, you can find us at flickchart.com/slash/the-next-reel, and you should go there because uh, you know that's where you can find our our uh, top list of films as we rank them each week, and uh, see what our favorite films are on the next reel. You should do that. It's good. You should follow us there. We'll follow you back. Then it's not a very popular. I mean, it's a tool for us. Not very many people follow us on on Flickchart, and that's that's a shame. Uh, but, but it's a tool for us to keep our our top 100. You can jump right to it if you go to thenextreel.com. You'll see the the next reel top 100 on Flickchart. Flickchart right there on the on the sidebar. You should click on that. You can jump over there and and friend us if you're interested in ranking your own films. Yeah, it's it's just a fun way to yeah. you know rank movies. You ready? I'm ready. The Killing or The Sandlot? I'm going to say The Killing. I'm totally going with The Killing. I, I'm i a big fan of The Killing. Yeah, right? yeah. I'm no, that's curious good. to see how high this one rises. Me too. The Killing or Zero Dark Thirty? Oh. I'll go Killing on this one too. Really? Yeah. It, it, it's just a fantastic... I, I kind of have an affinity for noir films. Anyway. Yeah, I, mean, I do too, so, but Zero Dark Thirty. I know. Zero Dark Thirty is a, is a very powerful film. Uh top-notch in every way but the killing for me just will always hold this amazing like amazingly powerful strong hold on my heart because i just find it such a fascinating story to watch i love these characters i love the crime i'm totally the killing <laughs> that's gonna be my new ringtone <laughs> i'm totally into crime totally into killing <laughs> okay i'll do it i w- i am also into crime and killing andy <laughs> for no other reason that you've got a new ringtone <laughs> All right. Oh, now we're getting into real tough ones. Interesting. Two films where you watch a fortune blow away in the wind. The Killing or The Treasure of the Sierra, Sierra Madre? <laughs> oh, that's, <laughs> that's a tough very, one. Very, very difficult. Um, but I'm going to tell you, I'll tell you why I'm going to say The Killing. Tell me. Because um, to me, uh, Treasure of the Sierra Madre is a fantastic film made on fantastic uh sequences individual sequences and the killing is i think a stronger story beginning to end hmm. yet the treasure of this year madre has an amazing opportunity or provides an amazing opportunity to delve into characters and their journey into a madness I'm torn. I am torn too because because you know I I mean we've talked about this a number of times the the sequences that really stand out to me obviously when Bogart loses it um the that whole sort of 20 minutes of him derailing is some of is incredibly powerful. Uh but on the whole if you take that out um uh, it does it stand up to the uh, the killing on on the whole I I, I kind of feel I feel it does really <laughs> yeah I I just I love watching those characters in that film uh, you know something about Walter Houston and his Walter Houston his was awesome joy uh, you know when he finds the gold and just watching these two interesting characters as they 
psychologically battle with each other. Boy, I'm torn with this. We one. don't, torn. in fact, need any badges. We don't. We don't need any badges. Ah, oh, man. I don't know. I may have. Maybe I was too rash. I don't know. <laughs> now you've got now your hesitation has given me time to rethink. Uh, you know, yeah, I, I feel like I have to go with Sierra Madre. Something about Fred C. Dobbs and just this, this mad quest for gold. The characters. The okay, journey okay, okay, the okay, 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 okay. It's a tough one. I really could, <laughs> I could almost go either way. All right. The Killing or Moneyball. <laughs> I'm going to say Moneyball. I could go almost either way on this one, too. You I'm going to say Moneyball. I'm going to say Moneyball and, and remind you that I've, I've just given you two. All right. Well, and here's here's what I'll say. I'm going to go with Moneyball if for only the only reason that the killing, if anything, still has kind of the dated narration with it. And it's the it's the only thing I think that still is for me is it's a little a little I don't want to say problematic, but it's one of those things that does date it a little bit. So I'm I'm going Moneyball. I'll right. go with that. that way. All right. The killing or when Harry met Sally. When I mean the killing. <laughs> I was going to be shocked if you said what Aaron I know. Because they're always like, I'm so not interested in watching romantic comedies. Oh, my goodness. I'll go with The Killing on that one, too. You should. Uh, oh, this is an interesting one. The Killing or The Bank Job. Get some of our high school. Oh, oh, right. Um, oh. I'm going to say The Killing out of respect for my elders. <laughs> Smart man. Smart move. All of my film school friends will like you now. <laughs> <laughs> the Killing or The Outlaw Josie Wales? Oh, boy. Ah, I, oh, I boy. Josie Wales. I, there's something about the, uh, the take that he, the, the, the different spin he has on the Western with it. And the fact that he's kind of, uh, you know, playing with the genre a little bit. I feel like I'm I'm a Josie Wales man. I think on this one, I'm I am uh, I'm really torn. Um, I, I think I'll I think I'll join you on Josie Wales. Uh, if I, I think that film, I think you're right. It's a very unique take on the westerns. I think it's also a very uh, I, I think it's an a really impeccably strong performance uh, from Eastwood in that movie. Yeah, I mean. It, it's interesting that we've had such a struggle with this film. Yeah. It, it just shows that our, our top, like, you know, 20, 30, 40 films, however many it is, we have so many films in here that we really enjoy. Yeah. And, and it's hard for us to rank some of these. There we are. We're number 20. 20 out of 96. Interesting. There you go. Getting up there. Uh, it's getting up there. I I wonder. I wonder. You wonder what I, you know. It just it that one. So usually we do this flick chart thing, and at the end I, I say something like, "Oh yeah, that feels pretty good." That's kind of my gut reaction. Is that movie's at twenty out of ninety six? Okay. Well, in this case, I I don't have that reaction. I'm 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 I hear you say, "There you go, it's twenty, and I say to myself, "That feels too low. Yeah. So I I, I don't know. Worth sitting well, on. We 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 know we've got a little bit of work to yeah, do with our. Yeah. We got to do some re-ranking. We got to do a little re-rank. Play around right. a little bit. Yeah. Maybe that'll be our annual event. We should do an <laughs> annual re-rank. There you go. All right. Cloud what are we do? We're, what are we moving on to uh, next week? Well, you know, we finished up our heist series with this uh, fantastic film, and uh, we're going to start a brand new series, Couples on the Run. This is a uh, a series that was, uh, I think, kind of inspired by uh, one of our uh, our our fans who commented on Facebook say, uh, talking, I, gosh, when was it when we were talking about, um, uh, was it when Tony Scott it was around the time when he, uh, committed suicide and we were talking about his films and how many great films he had and, uh, a true romance came up and the idea That's of right. doing some of his films. And it, it kind of spurred us on to this whole idea of, you know, it would be really fun to do some of these great couples on the run films. That's right. It was the Tony Scott thing. I think that is what spurred on this thing. So, so our new series, Couples on the Run, we're starting next week with uh, Midnight Run. Uh, interesting take on a couple on the run. Yeah, I do. I do enjoy that film. 
You know, I I always have fun watching that film. Charles Grodin is <laughs> just a piece of work, and I absolutely love watching him. <laughs> yeah, oh, Charles Grodin. Yeah, why don't why is why why don't we see more Charles Grodin just in life? I don't know. Didn't he retire from acting, or That's is he one of those people? Ugh. Holier than thou. Too many people with their, oh, I'm retiring. I'm retiring. I'm going to go do something and cleanse my soul. <laughs> this oh. filth. Oh, villainy, my vile filth and villainy of Hollywood. I tell you. These um, good fun, then. I think yeah. uh, I think that's it. I think we're done. Check us out. Nextreel.com. We'll be back with Midnight Run next week. Sayonara. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today.